we're wrapping up our series today on calling and courage. And I really hope that throughout the series, you've gained something out of it where you have a sense of where you can start in figuring out what our calling is. To understand that it first begins with that general calling that we have to come back to God and to be in relationship with Him. And as we are in relationship with God, what He does is it begins to peel back all of those barriers, all of the grime, all of the things that help us not see our own identity. And it begins to reveal to us through that relationship our specific call. He begins to clarify that call, that second call that all of us have is why we were placed on earth, why we have the specific uh, personalities, the experiences, the, the friends, the families that we we're born into. He makes sense of all of that that leads towards our specific call. Last week, we used the example of Obed-Edom. Remember him? So we used his example to kind of highlight a little bit of how we can put ourselves in a better position to do that first call, to be in that general call of a relationship back to God. So where the circumstances and other people may be kind of pushing God away, we see Obed-Edom banking everything on God. So where everyone else is fearful of him, where the society is kind of pushing God away at that time, Obed-Edom, he puts down his roots and he just says, no, the, the thing that I'm going to hold on to is God, even though everyone else lets go of him and holds on to other things. Today, as we wrap up our series, I want to focus on how we can put ourselves in a better position to clarify now that second calling, our specific call. How do we put ourselves in a better position to help clarify our specific call? And we're going to discover this today through the example and the story of David. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 17. We'll be reading from the NIV from verses 1 through 14. If you, if you don't have your Bibles, I think that Pastor Jen always puts it up on chat. But I'll be reading it for us. Please try to follow along in, in the Bible. It reads this. After David was settled in his palace, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. Nathan replied to David, Whatever you have in mind, do it, for God is with you. But that night, the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. You are not the one to build me a house to dwell in. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought Israel up out of Egypt to this day. I moved from one tent site to another, from one dwelling place to another. Wherever I moved, all the Israelites did I, did I ever say to any of their leaders whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they can have a home of their own 
and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did in the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also subdue all your enemies. I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessors. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. Let's pray. Father, today again, as we go through your word and as we have this opportunity, we've made time, we've made space to gather together here over Zoom in our own places, wherever we may be. I pray, may this time not be wasted. I ask, Father, Lord, that you would hold the seed that you have for each and every one of us in your hands, that nothing will be snatched away, Father, Lord, by the evil one, by things that distract us around us, Lord, from, from us, Father, thinking about other things. Help us to be still and to give attention to you, Father. And as we do, may your Holy Spirit work in such a way that makes us aware of your presence with us, that makes us aware of the work that you're going to do in our lives, that makes us aware of how tangible your power can be in leading us, in healing us, in restoring us. Father, we give you this time. Open up our eyes. Open up our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So from this passage, the first point that I want to make is this. Our unique call must not operate out of our good intentions. What we see in this passage is really this. That one of the first things that we recognize is that we need to beware the tendency that each of us have or will have in the future to live out our unique call, our specific call that God has given us out of our good intentions and not out of God's desires. We need to understand that fine line that is there. Any good intention that we have, it can appear to seem godly. It can appear to feel right. It can appear to be God's will because it looks like it. It sounds like it. It actually feels like it. You know, when we read the Pauline passage in Ephesians, like Ephesians chapter 4, 1, this is what Paul says to the Ephesian church when telling them this is how your Christian living should look like. He begins by saying this. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, so he was put in prison for doing God's work. As a prisoner for the Lord, he says, then I urge you, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. You know, it kind of sounds like this. I'm obligated to. God has done this for me, so I am obligated to do these things for God. Just like Paul, we look at his kind of position. He says, I'm obligated to be in prison for God because of what he has done for me. I'm obligated to do these kind of things. And we can come up with our own good intentions out of obligation. This is what happens with David in this passage. Look at 1 Chronicles 17 uh, verses 1 to 2, the very first two verses that we read. 
after David was settled in his palace, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. Nathan replied to David, Whatever you mind, do it, for God is with you. See, it says David was settled. So David, he's looking around him and he's like, Wow, look what I've done. I built myself a huge palace, right? I've defeated most of my enemies. Right? And now I am settled in a place. David realized that everything that he had gone through since he was 16 years old and just a lowly shepherd boy, he looks around and goes, wow, look at all I've accumulated. Look at where I am today from a shepherd boy to a king of a thriving and powerful nation. See, David saw how blessed he was by God. And after taking inventory of that blessing, looking around said, oh, I have this. I have this in my life. I have this. He finally realized, wow, I built myself a house out of the most expensive wood, but I forgot to do something good for God. God's ark is in a tent, right? And so I have a good intention. And he says, this is what I'll do for God. And so he develops this good intention that seems to even religious people like Nathan, to even the people around him in his own kingdom. Yeah, that sounds like a godly thing to do. Make God a house. Make a nice palace for God's ark as well. You see, no matter how good our intentions are, we need to be very careful here because good intentions can actually distract us from experiencing God's presence, power, and blessing in our life. It took David a long time to build his house of cedar. So you can imagine if David undertook the project of building a house, another huge, magnificent structure for the ark of God, it would have occupied a lot of his resources, a lot of his time, a lot of his energy. It would have distracted him from focusing on the true call, the specific call that God had planned for his life. This is why God reminds David of this, is don't function out of your good intentions. Look at verse 6. He asks David through Nathan, wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their leaders whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built a house for me? See, in other words, God's saying, when did I ever ask for that? Right? For Sometimes for us, we have this great intention. I'm going to do this for God, right? And God's going to be so happy that I do this for him because it seems so godly. And God says, when did I ask you to do that? As glorious as that might be, who are you doing it for? Is, this, is it to fulfill your own sense of good intentions? Is it to make you feel that you are righteous, that you are holy, that you are walking in my ways? Because when we occupy ourselves with doing good things for God out of our own good intentions, sometimes it can easily turn towards obligation. And rather than experiencing the fruitfulness of the true specific call that God has for our life, we're preoccupied by doing things that don't fulfill us. It's not meant 
for us. It just busies us and occupies our time and our space. You see, if David decided to move on his good intentions, he would have been way too busy for the final years of his life to realize what God really wanted David to experience through all of that journey. You see, all of this time, David was fighting. He never had a time of peace or a time of rest. He was always fighting. And, Dave, and God says, here's the why behind all of this now. And I don't want you, David, to forget the why. That leads us to our second point. The second point is our unique call helps us to experience God's pleasure. You see, when we're fulfilling our unique call, the one that God has for us, not the ones that we make up out of our good intentions, it helps us experience God's pleasure. You see, the reason why God doesn't want us operating out of our own good intentions is because He wants us to experience His pleasure in doing His will. Do we get that? He wants us to experience his pleasure in doing his will. Now, I want to let you guys know, sometimes identifying what that is, it requires help. We need help. We can't do it by ourselves. Look at who God chooses to reveal this to David. You see, David came up with that great idea by himself. He says, here I am, and he's reflecting on his own life, and it's a great reflection. Here I am in a great house, but God's ark resides in a tent. His heart's in the right place, but his actions and his direction is not. And so as he comes up with this great idea, if he just carried through with it because he thought this way I will please God or in this way that's what God wants for my life, he would have done it and he would have never known the wiser. But he would have missed out on this blessing that God wanted him to know. It's only when he approaches Nathan and he says to Nathan, hey, what do you think of this idea? Look at what Nathan the prophet initially says. He says, do it. Right? He says, go do it. God's with you. Right? But then it says, later on that night, God spoke to Nathan, not David. Spoke to Nathan, his confidant. And he says, go tell my servant David, that's not what I want you to do. I want to ask you, brothers and sisters, who do we let in into our life to help us? To help us identify what God may be doing in our life. Do we have a Nathan type person? Now, notice for Nathan, for some of us, we might say, yeah, I let this person into my life, but they get it wrong sometimes, right? Or don't, they don't get it right. But it doesn't matter. Nathan got it wrong too, right? His first encouragement to David is that, do it. That sounds good. Go for it. God's going to bless you, right? Nathan wants to be the supportive buddy, right? But then later, Nathan's able to see and hear from God that God's saying, no, 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 no. David's a doer. David will get so busy that he'll miss out on this blessing. And Nathan understands that about David, right? So when Nathan hears that, he goes, oh my goodness, I gave David the wrong instruction, right? And so he goes back to David and says, sorry, I was wrong. I, I think you're in danger. That's not what God wants for you. Brothers and sisters, 
Who do we have in our life that's like a Nathan, that we let in into our life like a Nathan? This is why we need community. This is why we share things in life group. This is why we're called to be in that community together, to have these Nathans in our life to support us along our journey so that we're not busying ourselves with our own good intentions, but the community helps us identify our specific call. Look what Nathan says to David in 1 Chronicles 17, 8b. He reminds David this. He says, God says, Now I will make your name like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning. And have done ever since the time I have appointed leaders over my people. I will also subdue all your enemies. You see, in other words, out of all of those battles, all the hardships that David went through from 16 all the way to fighting Goliath, making a name for himself, and then battling Saul's enemies while Saul wanting to kill David, and all of the in fighting that was happening within his own family structure that David was experiencing. Out of all of that, he comes to this point and God says, here's the why. Here's why you went through all of this. He says, because I want to make your name great. He says, because I want to establish your people so that they have their own homes and they can live in peace and your enemies are subdued around you so you can experience peace with me. See, God didn't want David to miss out on that. That blessing that God had planned for David, all of this is to uh, culminate to this, that this kingdom is established so that your people can experience my peace and understand what it means to be blessed by me rather than always just fighting battle after battle after battle, always after like surrendering yourself for my, for my good and doing religious activities towards me, like building my temple on, on, the, on the work of their backs. He says, I want to build your house, David. I want to build the people's houses, David. And I want this to be a time where you are blessed and you can enjoy my presence in peace. See, this was the promise. This was the culmination that God wanted David to experience, but he would have missed out on that if he was busy trying to build a temple. The promise that he gives is, he says in verse 12, I will build a house for you, David. David, you're not building a house, but I'm doing all of this and the work that you've done in the past and all of this came so that I can build a house for you. And as I build this house for you, David, I will set a ruler that is from your own genealogy that will be on this throne forever. And we know that Nathan was foreshadowing Jesus Christ. You see, in, when we look at this promise towards us, God's saying the reason why we go through all of our battles, the reason why we go through all of the stuff that we're going through, he says, I'm building a house for you. That's what God is saying. And not only that, as I build this house for you, I will establish a king in your life. 
And this king is not us who have uncertainties, us who have problems, us who have our enemies and stuff. Our king is Jesus Christ. And he says, he will rule your heart, your life, and it will be established forever. You see, this moved David away from doing things out of obligation toward doing things for God's pleasure. He says, this is wonderful. God, I want to follow in your ways. I want to do what you want me to do because, wow, can it be that you're so great and you're so mighty in all of this, but you're doing this for me? And David says, who am I in my household that you would do this for me? You see, we can't miss out on that blessing, that tangible peace that God wants to give and into our life and allow the keeper of that to be Jesus Christ in our hearts. You see, this moved David in such a way that he is able to declare. Look at what he says in verse 25 to 27. You, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him. So your servant has found courage to pray to you. You, Lord, are God. You have promised these good things to your servant. Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, Lord, have blessed it and it will be blessed forever. Do you see, do you catch David's words here? Now that you revealed that to me, David says, now I have the courage in fulfilling that calling that you have in my life. I have the courage to actually pray, may your will be done. Some of us, we're a little bit scared to pray audacious prayers like, God, you want to bless me, right? And, and you want my, this thing that you've been raising up in me to be established forever, right? That's your promise, right? Then let it be. You know, a lot of us, we're very tentative. Right? We're saying, oh, I don't want to pray that prayer just in case it doesn't happen and it disappoint me, disappoint me right? in terms of my relationship with God and God letting me down. He, David says, since you've reiterated that promise, God, man, I have the courage and the audacity to pray for it, Lord. You have brought me from whatever, and you can, you can substitute your own hardships, the difficulties that you went through in your childhood, what you experience in your families, what you experience in your workplace, what you may be experiencing right now. He says, all of that is accumulated and, and culminates to where God is saying, I want to build your house and I want to bless it. And rather than just saying, okay, maybe God, so I won't be too audacious and I'll just say, God, let me just be faithful or let me just, no, he's saying, God, do it. God, do it. I want to experience your pleasure. Your pleasure in me and who you made me to be and using all of this and knowing that I can enjoy it as well. And not always just feel like I'm obligated to do things for you. You see, David's obedience was not out of obligation but anticipation of God fulfilling his promise to David and blessing those around him as well. You guys all know the person Eric Liddell. Have you guys heard of him? Eric Liddell was a famous Scottish runner, right? He was really fast. And so there's a movie that was made 
uh, about him called Chariots of Fire. I see um, Michaela nodding her head. Michaela, me and you, same generation, right? So we should know it, right? But others of you who are younger, if you haven't seen it, you got to see the movie. It's incredible, Chariots of Fire. But Eric Liddell, he was a really fast runner, and he is quoted to say this. He says, when I run, I feel his pleasure. When I run, I feel God's pleasure. To give it up would be to hold God in contempt. It's not just fun. To win is to honor him. You see, they, uh, Eric Liddell, he came to this place of he's saying, God made me fast. And I know that he made me fast. And so I'm using it for God's pleasure. He says, I feel it when I'm able to use that gift to its fullest potential. And not only is it fun for me, but I know that it honors him. That's what his focus was. And so you can imagine him understanding that this has something to do with his life, something to do with his calling, something to do with giving honor to God. And then it culminated to the Olympics in 1924 in Paris, where he was invited because he was one of the fastest runners, right? And everybody wanted to see him run. His specialty was the 100-meter dash, right? And so as the Olympic schedule came out and he was in Paris, he's about to go into the heats for the 100-meter dash. All the heats for the 100 meters were scheduled to be on Sunday. And even though all of that practice and all of that pleasure and all that goodness, and it culminates up onto this, when he's about to run and he finds out at the Olympics that the heats are on Sunday, Eric has a choice. Am I really doing this to honor God? Do I really feel the God's pleasure when I'm doing it? Is that what the why behind this? Or is it for my own win, for my own desires? See, Eric Liddell, he refused to run, even though it meant giving up an Olympic gold medal. How many of us could do that? We, all of us, we make excuses, right? That God, our time with God, God understands. God knows our schedule. God knows that, you know, that I can use this for God's greater glory. And we make all this, but for Eric, it was crystal clear to him. I run for God's pleasure. I, I run to honor him. And even if it means giving this up, it's nothing. That giving up or that sacrifice is nothing compared to the honor and to bring pleasure that I get out of it for running for God. A lot of us, we don't know that because we've been doing things for God out of obligation. So look what happens after. What happened to Eric Liddell is that because everyone wanted to see him run, right? That everyone's trying to convince him come on, man, it's not a big deal, you can do it. And he kept saying no, to the point where finally the Olympic committee, they made a concession and said, let's enter him in into a race where the heats are not on Sunday. And the only race that was available at that time was the 400 meter dash. But that wasn't Eric's specialty. That's not what he trained in. But Eric gladly accepted, why? Because his main thing is when I run, I run and I experience the pleasure of God. Whether I'm ready for that or not, when I run and when I'm running in this 400-meter dash, I'm going to do it to honor him and to experience his pleasure. And so he did. He ran the 400-meter, and guess what? He made a world record at that time, and he won the 400-meter dash. A year later, you think that that kind, of, that kind of victory and that kind of experience would get to his head. 
but it doesn't. A year later, instead of running more races and all this kind of stuff, he says, I run for God's pleasure, but I know that God has called me to China. And he takes the next ship out, and he goes to China to do God's mission work. You see, he only ran for God's pleasure and made no compromise because he knew why he was doing what he was doing. Here's the last point that I want to make. Is our unique call, it also redeems our past experiences. Our unique call redeems our past experiences. See, the first thing that David, uh, the first thing that God highlights to David as he was talking to him saying, no, I don't want you to build that house for me. The first thing that God does in redirecting David's mind is found in verse 7 to 8. Look what God reminds David as, uh, David of. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone. I've cut off all your enemies before you. What God does is he redeems all the trauma and all the lowliness of David's past. You see, tending sheep wasn't a glamorous occupation. It was looked down upon by other nations, especially the Egyptians. They hated people who tended sheep. They thought it was the lowest of the lowest occupation. God remains, reminds David that he used his past experiences, no matter how lowly it was, no matter how despised his occupation was. He used his past experiences, a job that was dirty, a job that was frustrating, dealing with stubborn sheep, a job that was dangerous, dealing with animals, wild animals that would try to come and eat the sheep, to having enemies from other nations and even among his closest friends, to now becoming king. See, this was an important realization for David. He, he looks through his life and goes, wow, you've used my experiences as a lowly despised shepherd. You used my experiences as I, was, as I was moving up the ranks in this place, and then not only do I have foreign enemies that I have to defeat, but I also had enemies from within. Closest confidants, my closest family members, my own king that I'm fighting for, who wants me dead. He says, none of that got to me, right, and destroyed me. I didn't just sulk in that, saying, this, look what it did for me. I have all these wounds from my past. No, he uses all of those experiences to show David that his life is not in his hands but it's in God's hands. It's in his father's hands and leads him away from the thinking, I'm doing all of this for you, God. What are you doing for me? It leads him away from that thinking towards God's power and his goodness is with me all the days of my life. You see, we could have easily mistaken Paul's word in Ephesians 4.1 to mean be good and carry out all your responsibility. You know, live a life worthy of the calling that God has for you. 
But that's how we develop a works-oriented faith. And works orientation, we see at least a, a pharisaical lifestyle where there's no joy and there's only obligation. What Paul was trying to demonstrate is our goodness and our strength not being the primary thing, but God's power and greatness being the primary thing. You see, when we read a little bit further in Ephesians 4, 7, it reads this. Paul says this to remind us. It's not about your works. He says this, but each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. In other words, every one of us, he says, to live out our calling, right, to live a life worthy of the calling that God has given us, that strength doesn't come from our own goodness or our own obedience or our own effort. He said it comes from God's grace as he apportioned to each and every one of us. This is why when we keep reading on in 1 Chronicles 17.7, we see God saying these things to David, reminding him of God's grace in David's life that was apportioned to him. Look what he says. I took you from the pasture, God's grace. I have been with you wherever you have gone, God's grace. I've cut off all your enemies, God's grace. It wasn't David that was doing these things. It was God. It was God that was leading David in these ways. It wasn't our strength or our wisdom or our work ethic that got us where we are today. It was God, and that was David's recognition. See, God wants to continually work to redeem our past experiences so that our present and our future are not just wounds that we carry from our past. But he says, this is why you experience this. Because now for David... Being a shepherd helped them now deal with the frustrations of leading a stubborn people. See, for David, having foreign enemies and always having to fight them helped them trust in God's power and stay the course to give him victory. See, for David, having close enemies that came from his own family members and his closest confidants and his own king, it helped them understand human brokenness. And taught David how to cling to God alone. You see, through it all, God redeemed everything that David went through. And he made it beautiful. Now, as I end today, I want to show you guys a, a clip, a short clip that, that will illustrate what I'm talking about. And I'm going to end it with this. So here's a clip for us to watch together. And in the middle of my comedy set sometime, I'll stop and just talk to my audience. And we've been filming this, and it's, you know, it's, it's pretty cool. So we're in Winston-Salem. I'm going to show you a clip from Winston-Salem. And I'm just talking to this guy in the audience, and he tells me that he's a, uh, a musical instructor at a school. So I was like, all right, you're a musical instructor. You know, can you sing? Let me hear you sing a song. So this is what happened at the last episode of Michael Jr.'s Break Time. Check it. So you're a musical director. Cool. Yes, sir. All right. So um, let me get a couple. Let me get a couple bars of like uh, Amazing Grace. Can you do the first part of that? Let me, go ahead. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That bro could sing, you know what I'm saying? All right, all right. Um, now, once you give me the version, is if uh, 
your uncle just got out of jail, you got shot in the back when you was a kid. I'm just saying, let me see the hood version real quick, if you know which version I'm talking about, just see if that exists. Let me see what you got. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You know, that illustration, it helps us make sense at times of how beautiful God can use some of our brokenness in our past and how he can redeem it in our present and our future. You know, this guy, even though it was a very loose example and Michael Jr. is just asking him to imagine this kind of scenario. The first thing that he does is he asks him, can you sing Amazing Grace? And we understand the words behind Amazing Grace. And he does it, and he sings it beautifully, right? And he sings it according to his ability, right? And it's great, and it sounds great. But we see a very different distinction when Michael plants the idea in his head. Now, what if this was your scenario? Let's go back to a time where where there were people being sold into slavery, different races being used in tragic ways. And there, have that amazing grace be birthed out of those hurtful, tragic experiences. Now, how would you sing it then? And we see a deeper beauty that comes out as he imagines what that would be. For some of us, brothers and sisters, we all have deep hurts. We all have our own hiccups. We all have our own like uh, things that we're angry about and we're wounded by. But that very light example can remind us of how glorious those experiences can be when we couple it with living for God's pleasure. And he begins to make sense of all of our wounds and all of our hurts. And he brings it into this beautiful response, into a worship that is honoring to him and blesses everyone that's around. It's a depth that is beyond just obligation, just by being good out of our own goodness. It's inspiring. It's heartfelt. And it's transformative. Brothers and sisters, I pray that for each and every one of us, may you experience God making beauty out of our ashes. 
as we learn how to reconnect with him, to discover this general call that we have to go back to him. And as we do, he clarifies our specific call. And rather than living it out out of our obligation and out of our good intentions, we live it out for his pleasure. And we experience his beauty. Let me pray. Father, Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with this time. Thank you so much for encouraging us, Lord, with your word. I pray, Father, that you'll bring an unveiling to our eyes, to our hearts, so that we may see how we can serve your purposes for your pleasure, to experience your pleasure and to honor you. And as we do that, Father Lord, we see you blessing us and making us beautiful in your sight. I pray this prayer. May we identify that blessing. May each one of us begin to see that at work in our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.